Hmm. It would be unwise to return to the Archive empty-handed. Luckily, the Labyrinth has provided me with a wealth of amplifiers to choose from. <laughs> Too bad I removed all of them before little Sarah Baker even got a chance. Welcome back to Wislian On Air. We hope everyone will have a wonderful Thanksgiving break this week. Today, we have a special episode to celebrate Dr. Constance Akita's residency. With us here in the recording booth is Dr. Akita herself. Hello, Wislian. Once again, I am Asmodeus Q. Hansen. And I'm Sarah Baker, and you're listening to Wislian On Air. This week, we have a unique opportunity to sit down and talk with Dr. Akita. We have briefly mentioned some of her accomplishments, but Dr. Akita is one of the most famous scholars in the magical world. She hails from Tokyo, Japan, where she serves as the Dean of Research and Engagement at the Tokyo Academy of Mysticism, one of the leading schools of ancient magical research. Her accomplishments include lecturing in universities around the world, including China, Brazil, Australia, Nigeria, India, Colombia, Canada, and France. She's won awards, including the International Society of Magical History's Daphne Lucanus Ancient Book Award for her first book, The Magic Between the Lines, A Study of Written Mesopotamian Spellwork, the American Society of Magical History's Rising Historian Award, and the Magical Society of Japan's 30 Under 30 Award. Dr. Akita is also the author of over six books, including the highly regarded The Magic in Myth and Myth in Magic, which many of our students may recognize as a required reading for the freshman course SPL 1101 Intro to Spellwork. We are beyond thrilled to even have a fraction of her time here at Wislian. Oh, Sarah, you flatter me. We don't need to share my entire resume live. Thank you so much for scheduling a special episode just for me at the last minute. Of course! We're super excited to chat about your research and share this conversation with all of our students. Well, to start, could you tell us more about yourself? Of course, Asmodeus. I was actually born and raised in the States, Seattle to be exact. I chose to pursue higher education at the Tokyo Academy of Mysticism because of my interests at the time, which were, more broadly, magic and mythology in ancient times. At the age of 16, I graduated high school a little early. I had no idea what geographic area I wanted to study, but I knew I wanted it to be ancient times because ancient myths and archaeology have always interested me. This ultimately led to discovering Mesopotamian myths, legends, and customs that can help modern magic users understand the origins of magic and the history of our people. It's evident that magic and humanity have always coexisted, hence the many occurrences of magic and non-magical mythology. We, as magic users, can understand that those myths did have grains of truth in them, and it's our responsibility as historians of ancient magic to separate fact from fiction. That is so cool! What brings you here to Wislian? 
Well, it's kind of a long story. Not to worry, you have the whole broadcast. <laughs> well, in that case, Director Eldrin and I have been close friends since we were undergraduates. We actually met at the International Society of Magical History Convention and kept in touch through our schooling. We, obviously, had different areas of interest with Castillo, sorry, Director Eldrin, focusing on modern applications of spellwork pedagogy, and I, of course, focused on ancient magic. We have given presentations, written papers, and presented lectures around the world together, and we've even co-authored a few articles. From there, we both moved through our respective schools, me in Tokyo and Director Eldrin here in Maine. We both grew to hold administrative positions, but mine included continuation of my research. I was fortunate enough to be encouraged to research in my administrative position, so I kept looking into the origins of modern spellwork and how we could use storytelling to connect to our shared history. Over the summer, Director Eldrin reached out to me about a new opportunity that they wanted to pursue at Wisleyan, which was this lecture series and residency here at Wisleyan. It's an opportunity we've spoken about on uh, many occasions, and I'm delighted we were finally able to work out a time that worked for both of our schedules. You see, we are both active in the International Magical Coalition, serving as representatives for the education of magical beings, so it can be very difficult for us to uh, coordinate long periods of time like this. That's awesome. Can you tell us more about the myths that hold the most history for magic users to draw from? I mean, surely some myths are more accurate than others when discussing magical occurrences, right? Like, based on the research that we've done, we know that mythical creatures like shadow crows seem to be prevalent only in ancient myths. Wow, Sarah. How very astute. Yes, in fact, the shadow crow myths contain some of the most reliable information about what magical events ancient peoples would have experienced. Based on the records we've been able to decipher, ancient Mesopotamians encountered short periods of darkness, frequently accompanied by unfortunate events, which they began to call the Dark Bird, because it seemed to descend from the sky. And then, with time, the Dark Bird came to be associated with wartime. However, it's interesting to note that the sources that mention the Dark Bird always come from the opposing side of the conflict, as in, the Shadow Crow was used against them. And because of this, there is nothing in the historical or archaeological record that references how this magic was cast, or, if it was a creature, how the creature was harnessed. This could be a matter of secrecy, that the methods were passed on orally to prevent it from being stolen, or it could indicate that the phenomenon was not created by humans, but was something unrelated, like maybe some kind of magical weather event. As of now, we don't know. Ah, how interesting. So, 
how did you discover all of this? What methods did you use to piece these stories together? Surely it cannot have been easy. Oh, goodness, it has not been easy at all, and it has certainly not been just me. I work with a team of magicologists, linguists, spellmasters, archaeologists, anthropologists, and so many more professionals from around the world. Together, we develop new methods to read the written documents, determine where stories were edited, trace known oral histories, and conduct digs in the Middle East. Not to be too cliche here, but it has quite literally taken a village to make the discoveries my team has made in the past decade. We developed a new form of magic carbon dating that combines the processes of non-magical carbon dating and discovered the magical equivalent of half-lives. Because magic is heavily concentrated energy that latches onto elements like carbon and oxygen, given the right circumstances, it decays far faster than the non-magical equivalents. Therefore, we discovered that some traces of carbon actually appear much older than they actually are, when on objects that very clearly belong to more modern eras. Wow, that is so cool. I'm taking intro to magical and carbon dating this semester, and we're learning about that exact process. It's called magiocarbon dating, right? Exactly, Sarah. It's part of current teachings now, but up until about eight years ago, it was difficult to properly date magical items. This has resulted in some confusion with magical artifacts and relics, but the International Magical Archival Council is pushing to have re-archivists re-date their holdings. Honestly, it has been changing how we understand magical items across time. Anyway, so once my team developed, as you mentioned, magiocarbon dating, we were able to properly assess the age and breadth of magic because, you see, magic permeates everything in our world, but items that are imbued with magic have more energy to encourage magiocarbon decay. We discovered that artifacts called simple tokens, small round tokens made of metal and frequently inscribed or painted, were actually spell tokens. Like modern day spell scrolls? Exactly. We believe that these spell tokens were the earliest iterations of written spell work. One of our most interesting finds was a burial site, not with spell tokens inside of the tombs, but rather outside of the tombs, arranged in very specific patterns. Oh, like runes? Yes, exactly like runes. A few of the discovered tokens form the runes that we now associate with summoning spirits of the dead. We believe that, based on cross-referencing the archaeological data with written accounts of myths and the social development of early Mesopotamia, that magic users would summon spirits. If we add on the knowledge of the later ancient Greek societies in the classical era, then we can assume, but not confirm, that they would have summoned these spirits for advice, reunification of loved ones, and, most importantly, in times of hardship and warfare. From what we can gather, living beings would ask the deceased beings best courses of action. They almost served as an archive of people, Due to modern ethics, of course, we did not attempt to summon the souls of these tombs. There is a reason that death is not the end-all in many ancient societies, and I believe that is because magic wielders could bring people back from the dead, at least temporarily. 
Remember, students, that nowadays you must have express consent to summon souls from the dead. The souls that reside in this very archive have given their enthusiastic consent to serve as memory vessels to be summoned at any time. The same goes for the founder of our wonderful university, Amelia Harbour. As I'm sure many of you know, she dedicated her life and her afterlife to the continued success of Wisleyan. This led to many other questions, which I'm sure we don't have the time to discuss today, but that is what my lecture series is about. Join me across campus for the remainder of the semester to learn about how these revelations can still apply to us today. We may be thousands of years removed from ancient Mesopotamia, but that doesn't mean they are irrelevant, as many tend to believe. Ah yes, and what is your next lecture, Dr. Akita? My next lecture is with the College of Elemental Magics, where we will talk about how elemental magic was used to create and develop ancient technologies, and the ancient understanding of things like construction, irrigation, and the uses of fire. That will be next Monday at 7.30 p.m. in Lansing Auditorium, right? Right again, dear Sarah. Well, I believe we have a little time for a bit more discussion. I have one question about the research you shared. Of course, go for it. When you were discussing the bonds that magic creates with carbon and oxygen, I started to wonder, to what extent are those bonds possible? Like, theoretically speaking, if prolonged magical bonds interact significantly with life-giving elements, even on inanimate objects, could it then be possible for the magical bonds to also generate some kind of life-giving energy within those buildings or objects? Like a conscience or a, a heart? for instance. Wow, Asmodeus, you've stumbled on a question we've been trying to answer since we discovered the existence of magical bonds. If this is possible, it would require an intense magical presence that's maintained over a long period of time in order to develop this sort of self-regenerating energy that's similar to life. So far, we've seen a few instances of this happening, to a small degree, in places that have been consistently occupied by magic for centuries, or longer. What happens is that they've been exposed to so much magic that instead of beginning the process of magiocarbon decay, the magical bonds just keep functioning. There are a few Mesopotamian sites we've run into that are like this, and it's impossible to use magiocarbon dating to determine their ages because, well... The magiocarbon reads is currently active. It's an extremely fascinating phenomenon, and one that we don't fully understand yet. It hasn't been replicated in a lab setting, and we have no idea what its exact limitations and criteria might be. So, as for something as complex as a conscience or a heart, all I can say for now is, I don't know. I find that this is a great lesson to young academics, that sometimes you just don't know. You can be an expert in a field and still have unanswered questions, and that's okay. We research these questions, and sometimes we find the answer over a very complex series of events, but other times we will never find an answer. Asmodeus's question here is a perfect example of that. I've been cliched twice in this interview, but there is a lot of truth in the saying, an expert is one who knows more and more about less and less. I try to encourage that in my students because there is nothing to be ashamed of by not knowing. 
We are all here for such a short time that we can only hope to make progress for the next generation. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Akita. We are beyond honored to have you here in Wisley and on Air today. Yes, we look forward to seeing you around campus. It has been a pleasure talking with you two. Maybe we can grab lunch after this broadcast. We would love nothing more. Could I say it? Of course. Until next week, and remember, you're listening to Wislian On Air. Well, that was just lovely. Thank you both. Oh my gosh, no, thank you. It's not every day we get to talk about ancient Mesopotamia. I learned a great deal today. It was very enlightening. That's wonderful. That's why I'm here, to educate the youth of the future. Truthfully, how have you two been this semester? I've heard through the grapevine that this has been a very interesting semester. Oh, it's been great. My first semester with Lizzie on Air has been so cool. Like, we've interviewed and talked to so many students and faculty, and being able to be behind the scenes of the longest-running news broadcast for Wisleyan has to be, like, it's been nothing short of incredible. I used to listen to Wisleyan all the time online when I was committed, but oh my gosh, it's so stressful right now with, like, all the projects that are due right now before Thanksgiving break. Like, why do professors assign so much work right before break? Oh, Sorry, you're a professor, but, like, point stands. <sighs> I'm exhausted. Ah, uh, yes, I can imagine this is a stressful time for you all. I hope you don't mind me taking up one of your mornings. Oh, no, 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 of course not. Sarah, you mentioned you used to listen to Wisleyan on air before you became a student. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved it when Rory Manning was an anchor. I really looked up to him, and I hope the tracking committee finds him soon. Although, they seem a little bit uh, busy yes. with- yes. It's a shame what happened to Rory. It made international news because of how shocking it is that a student could go missing with virtually no magical traces. The International Magical Coalition has hope, though. That is good. How are you finding the archive? Is it- up to par with your standards of archival maintenance. We strive hard here to ensure that all magical items and relics are kept safe and remain safe for the students. Ugh, this archive is one of my favorites. That Ambrose really keeps things in line. I haven't gone very deep into any of the collections, but from what I've already seen, the collections here are very well cared for. Although, this archive does have a different feeling than others. Oh, how so? We try to follow the basic rules of Feng Shui because of how temperamental energy can be in this space. Maybe we need to rearrange some shelves and cards. Well, I do have some suggestions for that, but what I mean is that there is a strong aura of protection around these archives. It seems many spells and charms have been cast around here. Ah, yes. We have been very protective of the archives recently. There were some strange events around homecoming that concerned Professor Ambrose, so we set up some more charms and... Oh yeah, the homecoming queen's crown was stolen, right? Yep, they still haven't found it. A shame. That was a powerful item. Yeah, pretty too. Anyway, I was entirely serious about the lunch offer. Where are your favorite places on campus to eat? 
My treat, of course. Oh, Dr. Akita, you don't have to. We have dining credits. Well, I have been a little too busy to quest recently. Then it's settled. Lunch is on me today. Where would you all like to go? Oh, one of my favorites is actually a sandwich shop by the Musicology Tower. Thank you for listening to Wisleyan On Air. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop a follow and leave a rating and review wherever you get podcasts. We're a small podcast team, so it would mean the world to us. To stay up to date with all things Wisleyan, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and for behind-the-scenes content, TikTok, at Wisleyan. Wisleyan On Air is produced and written by Brenna Miller and Niall Williams. In this episode, Sarah Baker is voiced by Brenna Miller, Asmodeus Q. Hansen is voiced by Niall Williams, and Dr. Constance Akita is voiced by Star Fitzmorris. Next week, join Sarah, Asmodeus, and the students and faculty of Wesleyan University as the midterms creep closer and closer.